team of talented but very undisciplined players. And so Coach Dale comes in and he reinforces and reinforces over and again the fundamentals of the game, doesn't he? He emphasizes passing, he emphasizes dribbling, he emphasizes defense. In fact, at one point in the movie he says, my practices are not designed for your enjoyment because the fundamentals sometimes are difficult, but he hammers this away. And his focus on the fundamentals is ultimately what brings this team a highly successful season. In fact, before uh, one of their biggest games of the year, he calls the team together for a pregame speech and he, and he tells them, forget about the lights, forget about the crowds and, and their fancy uniforms and the size of the school fate that you're going to be facing today. Remember what got you here. Focus on the fundamentals. Now, a couple thousand years ago, a guy named Paul wrote a letter to a church and he, and he called them together toward the beginning of this letter for a bit of a pregame speech of his own. And, and in that letter, he said some of the same things. Essentially, he was telling them to, to focus on the fundamentals. Because you see, this church that he was writing to, the church at Corinth, had, had become distracted. They were forgetting first things first. They'd become distracted by the glitz and the glamour of their culture. They became overly impressed by their own spiritual gifts and selfishness started to creep in. And so Paul was writing and calling them back to a focus on the fundamentals. So the question for all of us this morning is, are you focused on the fundamentals? Because the truth is fundamentals matter not only in basketball, not only in music or art or craftsmanship, but they also matter in the Christian life. So are you focused on the fundamentals? Or would you say, you know, I'm probably a little bit more like the Corinthians, maybe a bit distracted you ever find yourself saying, I really wish I could prioritize the most important things in my life, but I have a lot of trouble doing that. I have a lot of trouble focusing on the fundamentals, on first things first. Maybe you're even here this morning and you don't even know what those fundamentals are anymore. Maybe, maybe you can't remember what the fundamentals of the Christian life are. You've been away from them for so long. What are those things that will continue to press us forward toward maturity in Christ? And then how do we exercise them? How do we practice them? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're asking some questions about Christianity and you wonder what your life might look like if you did become a Christian. What would your fundamentals look like if you decided to believe in Jesus? Well, it's with these questions and many others that we humbly come to God's word this morning. So I want to pray for us. Would you pray with me? Father, how thankful we are that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path, not only giving us answers to these practical questions, but also pointing us to the hero of history, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would see him clearly and we would respond well in his name. Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and meet me in the New Testament. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible or an ESV thin line Bible, you'll find it on page 952. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 page 952 of your pew Bibles, and as a quick aside, if you're here this morning and you don't own a Bible, please take one of those pew Bibles home with you. It's, it's our gift to you. Page 952, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at five verses this morning, and so why don't we read those all together. Uh, I'll read it out loud, and you can read along in your Bibles. Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Thanks be to God for his word. Well, we're beginning this morning and listening in to this pregame speech from the Apostle Paul, and he starts by reminding the Corinthians that they needed to focus on the fundamentals of the gospel message. The message of the gospel, the good news about how God has achieved or accomplished our salvation in Jesus, must be fundamental to the Christian life. And Paul gives us a few details on what it means to really practice this fundamental of the gospel message. First, we see that the gospel message centers on clear speaking. The gospel is a message that needs to be communicated with clear, focused words. Maybe you've seen that bumper sticker flying around town somewhere that says, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. Maybe you've seen that. Now, as much as that's a catchy little saying and a catchy little phrase, it's really terrible advice. And the reason that it's terrible advice is because you can't preach the gospel without words. It's a message. The heart of what it is is news. And imagine this evening turning on the the, the evening news to, to figure out what's going on in the world and there were no words used. It doesn't happen that way. So so the gospel message requires words to be spoken. Now, we can live in response to the gospel, and we should. We can live like God has changed us, and we should. I mean, the person who communicates the gospel without a life adorned by the gospel is really a hindrance to the gospel. But we shouldn't miss what Paul is showing us here, that gospel ministry does involve speaking, and not just any speaking, clear, focused speaking. And to appreciate this fully, we really need to grab the context of what was happening in Corinth, and we need to figure out the expectations of the people when he was there. He was there for about 18 months. And what would happen in that day, day, a Greek culture, is these philosophers and preachers would roll into town, and they would compete for applause using fancy rhetoric and persuasion, a lot of flair and fireworks. They would compete with one another for for applause. It was kind of like a combination between an Ivy League academic debate and a Lady Gaga concert. That's kind of what this, this would have been like. They would have been competing for applause. Now, Paul could have done the same thing with his message. He could have lived for the applause. For those of you that didn't get that reference, you're better off for it. He, he could have used a lot of persuasion and, and rhetoric, but Paul spoke. He resolved and determined to speak with simplicity and clarity. The question that comes to my mind is why? I mean, it certainly wasn't a matter of aptitude. I mean, the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest minds in human history. I think the answer is because Paul's desire was to showcase and spotlight something other than himself. And this shows us that the fundamental of the gospel message also centers on Jesus and his cross. The gospel message absolutely features the person and work of Jesus. Look again at Paul's words in verse 2 makes a remarkable statement. He says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, does this mean that Paul would just go around all day robotically just mouthing the words Jesus Christ and him crucified? You know, you saw him, hey, morning, Paul, Jesus Christ and him crucified, you know? I don't think that's what's happening here. In fact, if you, if you check out the rest of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul addresses all kind of subjects like marriage and Christian living and Christian liberty and ch- corporate church gatherings and, and much, much more. What we have to remember here is that Paul is starting his letter by calling this church that had become very distracted back to focus on the fundamentals. And so I think Roy Champa, who teaches over at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, gets it right when he says, for Paul, even the most practical ills such as divisions and problems of leadership, are remedied by focusing on the cross. For Paul, Christ crucified informs his total vision 
of the Christian life in ministry. So in centering on on Jesus and his cross, certainly we address the biggest problem that humanity has, our separation from God. When you talk about the cross, you have to talk about sin and the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And and in the gospel, in the message of Jesus and his cross, we, we have the remedy that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. But we have even more than that. We also have a baseline for rightly handling and dealing with every other area of the Christian life. That's why it's so important to focus on the fundamental of the gospel message and featuring Jesus in his cross. Now this Christmas season has been really unique for me. Uh, As a matter of fact, I'm doing uh, multiple weddings this Christmas season. I did one on Thursday, I'm doing another one on New Year's Eve, and I've never done that many Christmas weddings, and so I'm feeling a little bit like a Vegas chapel. But but, but the truth, I'm not wearing an Elvis suit when I officiate the ceremony though, but I, I love to do weddings. They're a lot of fun to celebrate and gather families together and celebrate these cool couples and get to know them a bit. But there comes a point in time in every ceremony when I have one job and responsibility. It's toward the end of the ceremony. And it's when I declare that they are husband and wife. And I proclaim and announce to the family and friends that are gathered in that place for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. You're probably familiar with those moments in weddings. And in that moment, as the officiant, I have one job, to spotlight and feature and showcase the glory and splendor of this new couple. I mean, at that moment, it's, it's not about me. In fact, if I'm doing it right, people aren't even looking at me at all. I mean, you might say at that moment, I become a herald. You know, like the herald angels that sing and, and they blow the trumpets. Or think about the Middle Ages, guys in tights with hats and big feathers and holding trumpets and announcing the entrance to the king. I wonder if you could name me one herald from history. I'm not sure you could, but I bet you could name me a king. And the reason is because the herald's job is to proclaim the excellency and the glory of the king. And this is exactly what we're called to do as Christian disciples. We are proclaimers, not performers. I wonder how we're doing with this fundamental. I mean, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're saying to yourself, I'm not sure I've ever told the gospel to anybody. I'm not sure I even know it well enough to tell anyone. And so your, your application, your takeaway this morning might be to learn the gospel well enough to share it with, with just one person this month, coming up in the month of January. For others, maybe the application is to take an honest look at how much you're really putting the spotlight on Jesus in your life and ministry. Are, are you more concerned with the way other people see you as a Christian than you are helping them to see the truth that is in the gospel, the truth of Jesus and his cross? Would would you be content to live a life and to to have a ministry of faithful obscurity where you went totally unnoticed? Or are you a bit more concerned with self-promotion or a personal agenda? Does your small group or Bible study focus more on church politics than Jesus and the cross? If it does, this is a great opportunity to realign and to get back to that fundamental of the gospel message. So as we continue to work through these five verses, we we pick up on another fundamental undercurrent. It's an undercurrent that Paul has been talking about all throughout the first part of this letter to the Corinthians. And frankly, it's a fundamental that might surprise you a bit. The second fundamental that we see from this passage is the fundamental of weakness. We should focus on the fundamental of gospel weakness. It's a critically important fundamental. And as we look deeper into this passage and into the surrounding context, you'll see this weakness found in a couple of particular places. The first place is that gospel weakness is found in the message, the message itself. 
I mean, superficially, the gospel message isn't really all that impressive. I mean, it's the story of a Jewish man with a controversial birth. He was raised in a small little farm town as a carpenter's son. It wasn't until he was 30 years old that he gained a little bit of a following, but the glory would only last a few years, and he would ultimately be abandoned by all of his friends and killed on a cross, an object of weakness, an object of humiliation. That's the message, a symbol of weakness and shame. And, and yet in, in this first letter, uh, in this chapter here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says things like this. He says the word of the cross or the gospel is foolishness. He goes on to say that the gospel is weak and low and despised. I mean, think a little bit more about the content of the gospel. Have you ever talked to a friend or a family member about the truth of the gospel? Talk about concepts like sin and, and judgment and the wrath of God. You know, they look at you and kind of turn their head a little bit and say, what are you talking about? That's, that's your pitch? The failed ministry of a crucified religious leader. I mean, that, that's the best that you have. I mean, sin? Who even uses that word anymore? Judgment? Are you guys trying to grow over there at Old North? Are you trying to grow your church? Are you trying to bury it? This message is offensive. It's weak. It's, it's absolutely unimpressive. And yet this weak message about a weak, crucified Savior is a fundamental characteristic of the gospel message. And we also see that this weakness is extended beyond the message to the messengers. Gospel weakness is also found in the messenger. Gospel messengers are characteristically weak. Look down at verses 3 and 4 of the passage. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. In other words, Paul's manner matched his message. His, his attitude matched his approach. By most standards, and certainly by the standards of his culture, Paul was not that impressive. He preached with a simple message, a simple subject, and a simple approach. What's your mental caricature of the Apostle Paul? How do you think about him? I mean, because on one hand, we have the mighty apostle to the Gentiles, the man who met Jesus face-to-face -face on the road to Damascus, right? The guy who wrote much of the New Testament someone who ultimately had more of an impact for the gospel than any other person apart from Jesus himself. But here, Paul describes himself as weak. And this wasn't some false humility or self-deprecation here. I mean, people in Corinth actually observed Paul as a, a person that they called him unimpressive. They said that his speaking amounted to nothing. We see that in 2 Corinthians 10. And further on in his second letter to this church, Paul talks about a particular weakness. He calls it a thorn in the flesh that God actually gave to him that was causing him great grief. He wanted rid of it. Some people say it might have been a physical ailment. Some people say it was a big emotional struggle. But in either case, we see that Paul, the great apostle Paul, the greatest gospel messenger in history, was a person of weakness. Now, Pastor Rick mentioned it earlier. It is still the Christmas season. You can see our decorations are still up here at the church. Mine are still up at home. I will not be taking mine home because I like to leave them up a little bit longer because it's too much work to get them down, up and down all the time. But it is the Christmas season. And so thinking about the Christmas season and this idea of fundamental weakness, I thought about one of my favorite Christmas songs. It's a, it's a silly, fun song. Rudolph, the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You guys all know the song. 
It was actually written and originally recorded back in the late 40s. And the original recording contract was offered to Bing Crosby, believe it or not. Uh, but he turned it down because I think he was too busy working on White Christmas, which is the number one selling Christmas song of all time. So Gene Autry, you know, Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, picked up Rudolph and he took the song. And it's become one of the most popular Christmas songs of all time. There's probably a lot of reasons for that. I mean, it's certainly a catchy tune. It's one of the first Christmas songs that my kids learned. Rudolph's a brave little character, but, but there's also this, this fundamental thread of weakness that runs all throughout Rudolph's story. I mean, he's born with this eyesore of a nose, right? I mean, his parents are ashamed of it. He's ashamed of it. It causes him grief and pain among his peers. You know, they're picking on him. They're calling him names. They won't let him join in any of the reindeer games. But then one foggy Christmas Eve. <laughs> and you know the rest of the story, right? And, and, and I realize this is a little trite, but in Rudolph's weakness, we actually see that the object of his weakness and shame becomes something that's, that's quite useful. Santa doesn't take his nose away. He actually pushes it to the front of his team, and Rudolph saves Christmas with this absolutely ridiculous nose. So as we think about that silly story, as we think about the truth of what Paul is presenting in this passage, we see that the fundamental of gospel weakness is both liberating and devastating. It's liberating because it shows us that weakness is God's canvas for painting beautiful masterpieces. That means that you, even you, in all of your weakness, are in a position to be loved and accepted by God and used by Him. Not in spite of your weakness, but because of your weakness. In fact, it was the great 19th century missionary Hudson Taylor that said all of God's giants have been weak people. Now, the other side of this fundamental of gospel weakness is that it's, it's really devastating. It's really crushing. And that's because the fundamental of gospel weakness brings us face to face with the thing that we dread the most, the thing that we don't want anyone else to know about. For you, maybe it's a failed relationship or a physical ailment or some kind of deep emotional struggle that you're going through. Maybe it's a deep-seated insecurity or fear. Maybe your weakness is actually something called pride because you've worked so hard to build that superficial shell of strength around your life. The gospel brings us low because it forces us to look our weaknesses right in the face, even our sin. It takes away our strength and it strips away our boasting. The gospel demolishes human wisdom and human strength because even in our best efforts, our most technological innovations, our, our greatest architectures, our philanthropy, does not address the problem of our separation from God, does it? But the cross, God's object of weakness does address that problem. And because it's God's work, because it's not a work of human ingenuity that, that, that spotlights human pride, it's a work of divine grace, which spotlights human weakness. So we've heard about this fundamental of the message itself, speaking, the subject of the gospel. We've, we've talked about the weakness of the gospel, and we're going to see in the final part of our passage today that, that it's this fundamental of gospel weakness that's pushing us somewhere. It's leading to this great crescendo, and this place of weakness is when God comes to us gently with remarkable power. We should also be focusing on the fundamentals of gospel power gospel power. Let's look again at verses 4 and 5. The end of verse 4 says he, he, Paul says he ultimately came not with power, not with wisdom, but 
in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here, Paul ultimately gives us the reason behind his building argument, the whole first part of his letter. He says, you want to know why I focus so much on the cross? You want to know why I emphasize this message of weakness as a person of weakness? Here it is. First, he says that you need to remember that gospel power comes from God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the 350 horsepower engine under the hood of the gospel. Earlier, we said things like the word of the cross, the gospel is foolish and weak and lowly. So how do we square those things together? Well, the truth is, that's only half the story. And I want you to look down at your Bibles and peek up just a few verses on your page to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. You'll see that he says, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let your eyes go down the page a bit more to verse 22. He says that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That's where their power came from. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see the difference there? Do you see the contrast? It's the effectual call of God and the active work of the Holy Spirit in applying the gospel to people's hearts. John Stott says it so well. He says the Holy Spirit takes our our human words spoken in great weakness and frailty and he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, and the will of the hearer in such a way that they see and believe. And when we get our arms around this, We grasp the second component to gospel power, and that's that it causes faith among God's people. Gospel power causes faith among God's people. It causes our faith to rest in God. You see, the Corinthians had moved past the fundamentals of gospel power. They were trusting in fancy speaking. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, they were trusting in these men called super apostles that had moved past the gospel. They were impressed with their own spiritual gifts and their social connections. But Paul is calling them here to realign their faith, not with their own power. He's reminding them of their weakness and reminding them of the power of God. Again, I want you to look back at your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians 1.28. We're just tracking all the way through this. Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. That's the crushing part so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see how that parallels where we've come from chapter 2? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, we have to remember that it's God who does the heavy lifting. Now, speaking of heavy lifting, uh, I don't like it. And, And a lot of times when you have to lift heavy things is when you're moving. And many years ago, a young church planning pastor found this out. He and his family were were moving. And lifting furniture is hard because it's physically exhausting. You you wake up the next morning sore in places you didn't even know you had. So moving furniture is not a lot of fun. And yet he and his family, they they saddled up the crew. They called their best friends together because only your best friends will help you move. They got the moving truck. They ordered a few pizzas. And they got to work. And after many, many hours and trips back and forth, they had just about everything together. And they came to the last piece of furniture, the heaviest piece. 
a giant L-shaped solid cherry desk for the pastor's study. And so they, they got after it, they got the moving straps on, and they got the thing out of the truck, down the stairs, and after they pulled a few muscles and said a few words they'd later regret, they got the thing in the office. Just a few more feet of nudging to go and they'd be in good shape. It was at this point that the pastor's five-year-old son came up to him and he said, Dad, can I help you? Can I help you move this big desk? Of course, the pastor said, yeah, son, absolutely. And so together, the dad kind of overtopped and the son down here, they started nudging and they're going kind of an inch at a time. They're taking their time through it. And finally, the little guy looks up at, at his dad and he says, Dad, I got this. I got this. He says, I can take care of this myself. And so he smiled at him and, and, and humored him and backed away and, and the little guy got after it. I mean, he just, he put all his might into this desk and he, and he pushed and he pushed and he pushed and the thing wouldn't budge, obviously. It wouldn't move an inch. He looked up again at his dad and he said, I think it looks good right here. <laughs> dad kind of smiled, but it, it, it's, it's an incredible lesson, isn't it? I mean, what are you depending on for power? Where would you say power comes from? For the Jews in Paul's day, it was through miraculous signs. For the Greeks, it was in wisdom. But what did Paul give them? He gave them the gospel. That's because that is where true power comes from, because the gospel is the Father's vehicle to proclaim the message of the Son in the power of the Spirit. What are you depending on for power? Your bank account, stock market, your social connections, your home, your family? Where does your significance come from? Where does your power come from? Today is an incredible day, friends, to remember that the way that we exercise our faith is, is by resting it, resting it in the power of God, as verse 5 says. We can also apply this passage to our church, and I have to tell you, as I prayed and prepared for this message, this really hit home. One of the biggest hurdles that I think we have around here at Old North is that we're so powerful. Let me think about it for a minute. We meet in this palace every week. We've given away millions of dollars to missions and outreach organizations. We're part of a Western culture, the most powerful culture in the history of the world. We have an incredible staff. And these are all, these are all good things. But the question that we have to square with this morning is, are we relying more on our slick programming and our pragmatic ministries than we are in the power of the gospel? Have we moved past the fundamentals of gospel power? Or would we find contentment to just go on proclaiming a simple message, a weak message, as weak people, transparently, honestly, vulnerably, and then trusting the power of God to do the heavy lifting? Would we be content to do that? I'm going to invite the band to come up here. I'm going to close here in just a minute. Certainly an opportunity and a time for us to respond, but... One of my favorite parts of the Christmas season, and, and it may be one of your favorite parts as well, is when my kids get to open their Christmas presents. I mean, the, the enthusiasm has been building for months, right? I mean, they, they, they take a look at the, the Toys R Us big book of, cho of toys, cranks. Your kids do that. They get the Toys R Us big book of toys, and they go through that baby with a highlighter, and I open it up to find out what they want, and the whole thing is highlighted. But they... <laughs> They pick a few gifts and they go through the big book of toys and they, they take their request to the big man in the red suit and they get that all squared away. Then comes Christmas morning. They stumble out of their bedrooms and come down the hallway. They open up their gifts and you see their faces light up. And from time to time, man, we really nail it. I mean, we get the present right. And they open this thing and they love it. 
and they play with it all day long and they savor it and they enjoy it. And then, a few months later, they lose interest altogether. Friends, the gospel is a gift. It's the incredible news about how we can receive forgiveness and peace and justification. And most of all, we can receive a relationship with God. He is the gift of the gospel. But the gospel is not a gift that should be played with for a few months and then thrown down into the basement with the rest of the dusty toys. The gospel is the gift that we should return to over and over again, enjoying it, savoring it, appreciating it. In fact, it's the fundamental that we've seen throughout the entire message this morning. That's because the big idea that we're after today, the big thing that Paul was trying to communicate here to the Corinthians is that we need to focus on the fundamentals of the gospel. We should inform and shape our lives around this fundamental. We should focus on the message and the weakness and the power of the gospel. We're going to finish this morning with some remarkable words from the Apostle Paul. We looked at a bit at the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians, and now we're going to zoom to the end of this letter. And like giant bookends, I want you to listen very carefully from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Allow your hearts to be open to hear God's word. He says, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Did you pick that up? Did you pick up the tents there, those clauses? The gospel in which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved. Think about those words. You see, the gospel not only offers us salvation initially, it also extends to us salvation continually. Our ongoing growth toward maturity in Christ is inseparably tied to the gospel. Paul is saying, don't leave the gospel. Don't move on from it. Hang on to it. Savor it. Practice it. Preach it to yourself every single day. Focus on the fundamentals of the gospel. Friends, the gospel is not a rudiment that's doomed to become a relic. It's a fundamental destined to be a foundation. It's not old news. It's good news. Maybe you're here today and you've forgotten that. If you have and you'd like to come down and you'd like to pray and you'd like to get some time with the Lord, uh, we always want to open that opportunity up to you. We have leaders who are here that would love to pray with you. If you're here today and maybe something that we've talked about has resonated with you, maybe you're carrying around that weakness and you've been trying to hide it, and instead God's calling you to bring it out into the open so that you can be reminded of your need for grace and so that his power can shine in your life. Maybe you've placed your faith in something other than God and in his power. Maybe you've been relying on something else. Maybe you've been relying on your own strength to get you through the Christian life. Maybe you've been relying on your own morality to make yourself right with God. Friends, the cross reminds us that only the perfect substitutionary work of Jesus can take care of that for us, and that's remarkable news. That's why our faith can rest in the power of God. My prayer for all of us today is that we would leave here with a fresh focus on the fundamental of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, how humbled we are that you would care enough to share this good news with us, to include us in your story broken, weak people like us who, truth be told, have our minds set against you in your ways, and yet it is in that moment, in that moment of weakness and separation from you that you come near to us. 
So I pray that you would help us to respond today by praising you, by savoring the good news of the gospel, by coming back to it over and over again. Forgive us for forgetting it. Forgive us for relegating the cross to a a little relic that hangs on our wall rather than being a, a central focal point in our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to respond well now to your glory and for Jesus' sake.